I warn you this morning that Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6 to 19, which we're going to go through all of these verses, is a textual gut punch. It is hard truth, hard warning, an admonition to people who consider themselves believers, who consider themselves religious, who bask in the warmth of other people's faith, and yet have they themselves never appropriated it for their own, have never believed themselves in Christ. Those who think that because they just said a prayer, they said a prayer 20, 30 years ago, or five years ago, or 50 years ago, or 70 years ago, that they are hanging their hopes not in their current belief, but rather in some past act, and they think they're covered. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6 to 19. Verse 6 says, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold fast our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for many years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is a complicated passage which at first pass makes us ask some significant questions. Questions like, is it possible to lose my salvation in falling away from the living God? Is it possible that after being a Christian all of these years that I would fail to enter the eternal rest of heaven? It makes us ask questions like, well then what is necessary to be saved? And how do I have assurance that I will indeed enter through heaven's gates? There are no more important questions than the ones I have laid before you. And the writer of Hebrews is intent on answering those questions. 
asking hard questions and answering them with definitive answers. But we really have to carefully dig into the text because the writer of Hebrews is writing to Hebrews. People who know the Bible, people who know who God is, they're familiar with his attributes. They have seen his works. They have understood so many of the mysteries of his revelation. And yet he's warning them, you who are so close to God, who bask in the preaching week after week, who enjoy the warmth of your parents' faith or your friends' faith, or the benefits of being close to the fire and yet never having that fire within you. Beware. As Jesus once said, the seed that falls on the ground and sprouts up, it sprouts up quickly with joy, but then when the sun comes out because it has no root, it withers away. This morning is a challenging text to preach, not only because of its content, but also because of its arrangement. So those of you who are note takers, I want to give you a heads up. I do not have a sermonic outline. We are going to walk through this text verse by verse and make observations. But you need to pay careful attention to the exhortations. For instance, the fact that he begins with, do not harden your hearts. And then in verse 12, take care, pay careful attention that what? If there is an unbelieving heart, exhort one another. Do not harden your hearts, verse 15. There are themes here of beware of unbelief, beware of sin that so deceptively hardens our hearts. If you're looking for a big idea this morning, this is what I would give you. A big idea of the passage is do not harden your heart in unbelief. Do not harden your heart in unbelief. And yet I wrestled with if that was really the big idea because there's two other key things that this passage teaches. Another one is faith and obedience are inseparable realities. Faith and obedience are inseparable realities. In other words, the writer of Hebrews does not conceive of a Christian who has faith but not the life. Nor does he believe that you can live a life truly that pleases God unless there is faith. Faith and life are inseparable realities. Another major theme that you'll find in this text is that endurance in belief is the test of true faith. Endurance and belief is the test of true faith. I've been greatly helped this week by Charles Spurgeon and John Owen, ancient preachers who have preached through this text. And some of you are wondering, you know, we're already in chapter 3, we're almost in chapter 4, uh, and you're thinking, my goodness, this series is already taking a long time. John Owen preached over 300 sermons on the book of Hebrews and wrote over 20 commentaries on this one book. I will not do that. But I do hope to give you an understanding walking through this majestic book. Verse 6. We are his house. If we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. 
We are his household, his people, condition, if we hold fast. The defining mark of the people of God is a holding fast to the confidence of our hope. What is that confidence and hope? We've been learning about it for weeks. Chapter 1 and chapter 2. Our confidence and hope is, and if you pay careful attention, this is a chapter 1 and chapter 2. This is the gospel laid out. Chapter 1, a God who is transcendent, upholder of all things, majestic, all-powerful. And then in chapter 2, we see verse 14, he takes on flesh. This transcendent God takes on flesh through his death on the cross to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all of us who are captive to death. And he does this by becoming our high priest, by being made like us in every respect, And then on that cross, offering propitiation, satisfaction of God's wrath for our sins, cleansing our sins, and then helping us day by day through the power of his Holy Spirit. And the true household of God, verse 6 of chapter 3, are those who hold fast to this confession. In other words, if you want to know the people of God, they are the people that hold fast unflinchingly to the centrality of Christ. His person and his work. What defines the church of God, the true church of God, is an unflinching holding fast to the person and the work of Christ. Verse 7, if this is you, therefore, here comes the instruction, as the Holy Spirit says. Now verse 7 The words that we're about to read are attributed to the Holy Spirit. In verse 8 through verse 11, he is quoting from Psalm 95. This psalm, if you look at it, the first few verses, verses 1 through 6, have to do with praising God. It's a very familiar psalm. Perhaps if I read just a portion, you will be familiar with it. For the Lord is a great God and great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God and Maker. Worship God. But then the psalm quickly transitions in verse 7. But if today you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. As in the day of rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, when the Israelites walked through the wilderness and they tested God. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, it is a remarkable thing. If you want to testify to Scripture's own convictions about who wrote the Bible, Psalm 95, though written by a man, was ultimately inspired by the Holy Spirit. It says the Holy Spirit said this, not a psalmist. The Holy Spirit, matter of fact, says in the Greek, it's in the present tense. In other words, the Holy Spirit is saying. It's not that the Holy Spirit said something way back when and he's silent today. When people say, I just want to hear a word from the Holy Spirit. If you want to hear a word from the Holy Spirit, then you read the Word of God because the Holy Spirit continues to speak through the Word of God. The Holy Spirit is saying. The Holy Spirit is speaking. And how does the Holy Spirit speak? Through these pages. That is why 
That is why I believe exposition, teaching the word of God verse by verse is so critical because we believe that the Holy Spirit, that God himself is speaking through this book to us today. The Holy Spirit says today and twice in this passage in verse 7 and in verse 15, the writer of Hebrews says, Today, not tomorrow, today, listen right now. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. All you have is right now. The Lord could come back in the next few minutes. You could die in a car wreck driving home from church. You don't have tomorrow, but you do have today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In other words, obedience is a present tense responsibility. Planned obedience tomorrow is disobedience today. Planned obedience tomorrow is disobedience today. Yes, I'm putting it in very contrasting statements because the word of God urges us today to listen, to be obedient. In verse 8, to not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. What is this day of rebellion? This day of rebellion we actually talked about last week in Numbers chapter 14, verse 1 through 4. And this passage, Numbers 14, in verses 1 through 4, we see the people of God just after they have heard the report of the spies who went to spy out Canaan. They come back and 10 of the spies say, the sons of Anak are there. They're too great for us. Now you see, the Lord had already told them, don't worry about them. I will take care of them for you. But they did not believe God. Two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, said, no, God said this land is ours. We can go in and take the land. But the people refused to obey. Matter of fact, number 14 says, all the congregation raised a loud cry. And the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to these, to Moses and Aaron, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader. And go back to Egypt. Rather than obey God. Now notice this. Egypt represents slavery. But they're willing to trade their freedom. And willingly enter into slavery and captivity. For the sake of personal comfort. Now think about that for just a moment. How many of us are willing to enter into the slavery of sin because sin promises, promises us temporary comfort and pleasure? We are so willing to trade our freedom for the sake of that comfort. 
This day of rebellion was a day that really began a journey of Israel continually not believing. Let's be very clear. When I I say not believing, it's not that they doubted whether God existed. I mean, they saw God on the mountain. They saw him in the pillar of fire. They saw him part the waters. It's not that they doubted or disbelieved that God existed. Rather, they did not believe his word. They did not obey his instruction. They did not trust his character. They disbelieved his being. And this is not a one-time event. It says that they tested in the wilderness. They provoked him. They always go astray. They were marked by continual, a continual lifestyle of disbelief. They had the right teaching. They had the right theology, as it were. They had one of the greatest prophets ever to live, Moses, to teach them the Word of God. They had the Ten Commandments and the laws. They knew more about God than anybody. But in their hearts, they continually disbelieved. The result of this disbelief, and I find this a terrifying thing. And if it doesn't terrify you, then check your heart. Because you see, they harden their hearts. They put God to the test, verse 9. God is provoked. Now, you do not provoke a lion. Why? Because he can tear you to shreds. Why would you poke and provoke the living, omnipotent God? And that's what these people did. The result of this provoking was God covenanting with himself, swearing with himself that these people would be damned. They will not enter my rest. What does it mean to enter the rest? The book of Hebrews uses something called typology. A type, in other words, a partial image that foreshadows the full picture of Christ. And throughout the New Testament, and especially in the book of Hebrews, the exodus and the wilderness wanderings going to the land of Canaan is a type of the work of Christ. The exodus, Christ leading us out of captivity. The Passover, Christ is the Passover lamb on the cross. The manna providing for us in the wilderness is even reminiscent of what we partake at the Lord's table with the bread and the cup in that we partake in his blessings and he provides for us. He keeps us and he guides us looking forward to what? The promised land, the land of Canaan, which is entry into what Richard Baxter, the Puritan, called the saint's everlasting rest or heaven. You need to understand something, that what kept them out of that rest was not because they were an imperfect people, but it's because they were an unbelieving people. It was their unbelief that kept them from the rest and brought the wrath of God. Now, it wasn't immediate. God held on to these people for 40 years, reaching out to them. Showing them his grace and his mercy again and again and again, but they continually pushed back the gracious hand of God. 
Unbelief. We may think of unbelief as a slight sin, but unbelief is the sin of sins. There's so much Christian mythology and mysticism around what is called the unpardonable sin. And I preached on this some years back. You want to know what the unpardonable sin is? The unpardonable sin is dying in unbelief. The unpardonable sin is dying in unbelief. Every single, you you think, I can't come to God. You have no idea what I have done. You think, am I a Christian? Look at the sins that I struggle with. Listen, every single one of those things are pardonable. The one thing that is not pardonable is unbelief. If you are a sinner, good. You recognize it. Belief. And it's pardoned. You struggle with your sin, so do all of us. Belief. Don't disbelief. Don't disbelieve. If you say God can't cleanse me, I am too bad of a sinner, what you are saying is that his grace and his power and his sacrifice is not enough. You are unbelieving his ability to cleanse you. Do not unbelieve. Disbelief. Rather believe. The writer continues, verse 12. Take care, brothers. He's speaking to you. I'm speaking to you. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Remember, this is a warning against unbelief, and he is speaking to a religious people who enjoy the warmth of the Christian faith, as it were, but are not actually believers. It is possible to enjoy the warmth of the Christian faith, but actually not be a Christian. In other words, you come for years and for decades, and you come and you see the, and you hear, and you think you're a part of something that you are not. My kids, I hope, in my home, bask in the warmth and vibrancy of my relationship with Christ. I cannot control their decision, but I want my home to overflow with the scent of Jesus. But I am very clear with them, and as I would be clear with you, just because you feel the warmth of the fire doesn't mean that the fire is in you. Have you believed? You see, Israel experienced the warmth of God's blessing. It's possible to be close to God, but not in Christ, as it were. If you think about the Israelites, their encampment was near to the tabernacle. Can you imagine an Israelite saying, hey, my tent was only two blocks removed from the tabernacle of God. I'm good. I was there. I saw that. Miracle, although now on second thought, maybe I was delusional or maybe it was just a strong wind. It was just happen chance. I don't know, but whatever it was, you know what? I want to be with these people. They seem to know what they're doing. They seem to have confidence. They seem to be fun people to be around. And you know what? I'm good. You know who the archetype of faith? Abraham. It's very simple. Abraham 
believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's it. He didn't say, wow, I've got visions. I've got blessings. His security, his foundation, his hope was he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Take care if you are basking in the warmth but do not actually have a believing heart. And you fall away. This is not loss of salvation. This is falling away. You were so near, so close. For 40 years you have heard preaching and heard the singing and heard the saints talk about the Christian faith. But take care lest you fall away because you never entered in. I have seen too many already in my relatively short stint in this decade plus of being your pastor. Too many who started out and yet walked away from the faith. Hebrews says, you will know them if they continue. If they fall away, you, never, you know that they were never one of us. That is a concept that we're going to come back to again and again he says, today, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, you see every hour that passing is hardening you if you're remaining out of Christ. And it becomes less probable, humanly speaking, that God will meet you if you do not take today. Every day that goes by is wasted. So many appeals of the Holy Spirit upon your hearts thrown away. The Holy Spirit says, today, but you say, tomorrow. Or you say, I'm okay. Be careful. Be careful that your heart is hardened. Exhort one another. Make sure that you take care. Verse 13, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And brothers and sisters in Christ who are truly believers, beware of the hardening effect of sin. Beware how sin hardens us. And notice this, sin is deceitful. It doesn't look like sin. It doesn't smell like sin. Charles Spurgeon says, beware of sin who changes her clothes and comes beautifully dressed, promising things that are in fact false. The deceitfulness of sin can be seen in several different ways. It can be seen in the manner of how it approaches us. You know, sin does not uncover all of its hideousness nor reveal its horrible consequences up front. It comes promising good things. Sin says, forget that covenant of marriage, go after divorce, your happiness is worth it. Sin may say pleasure or that relationship is worth it. It approaches us with appeals of happiness. Sin is also deceitful in its object in that it promises something, but it gives us something else instead. It promises us happiness, but all it gives us is brokenness. Sin will also deceive us in changing its name. 
We may think of it as justice or my right, which justice in its right context is, of course, holy. And our rights, as it were, speaking of created in the image of God, has its appropriate place. But we can use our rights and justice to assert revenge when, in fact, we need to entrust ourselves to God. Spurgeon again says, fine words are often used to cover foul deeds, yet names do not alter things, and sin is sin. Sin promises things that it never delivers on, and the hardening is so subtle. The hardening of our hearts often just simply begins with neglect of our private devotions. We're not careful or tender. Another symptom is that we, when the the Savior hides his face from us, that it does not cause that acute and poignant sorrow that it once produced beforehand. Just like like Saul did not know that the Holy Spirit had departed him, we don't feel or even sense the Lord's distance. Still further, when we sin, sin no longer causes such grief as it once did. And the ladder continues to go down, down into destruction. With sin causing less and less grief, we indulge in it more and more freely. After this, the man or the woman comes to dislike rebukes. And once you rebuke that sinner, they hate that rebuke. You see, the wise man, Proverbs says, rebuke him seven times and he will invite it every time. You knock him down seven times, he gets up seven times. But the one who has lost his sensitivity, instead of saying, oh my goodness, is that really in my life? We hate the messenger. We hate the person whom the Lord uses to bring conviction. As this hardening goes on and on, the word of God loses all effect upon you and you sit here week after week and listen, I am far from a perfect preacher, but if you get nothing out of these sermons, you need to check your heart because by conviction, I am reading a lot of God's word and if nothing else you get, you should be hearing God's word and it should be driving deep into your heart and you should say, yeah, I didn't agree. Maybe Pastor Nathan with this or that, but my goodness, what he read, that's God's word and my goodness, it convicts my heart. If the word of God week after week has no effect on your life, is your heart hard? Is it easy just to excuse it that I'm not a good enough preacher or that you disagree with some finite theological point instead of opening yourself up to God's conviction? I am not perfect, but God's word is. And what I'm doing is I'm just walking through here what the word of God says. So how do you keep from getting a hard heart? Believe. Believe that this is his word, that he's speaking to you. Confess your sin. Cultivate tenderness of God in your life. Fight for it. And encourage one another. Look at this this exhortation. Exhort one another every day. Do not neglect the body of Christ. You know what? COVID has brought on something in that we are able to worship 
via distance and online. And there are many times that we need to, for different reasons, health reasons or place in life. And to those of you watching online, this is not a slight against anybody watching online primarily. There may be a legitimate reason. But let me encourage all of you, all of us, online or here, you cannot supplant the work of the body of Christ surrounding yourself with believers where people are speaking into your life day by day and exhorting you in the faith for a couple of sermons on Sunday that just make you feel good. The church needs to meet. The church needs to exhort one of the church needs to be in relationship in our discipleship communities. Are you part of a community where you're speaking truth to each other daily to help make sure that our heart isn't hardened and to expose that you've been playing the Christian game perhaps and your heart is hard and it's really unbelieving and your heart indeed does need to be broken. Exhort one another. Verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ. Conditional. If indeed we hold fast our original confidence firm to the end. Endurance is the true test of faith. Now let me, let me play this out for just a minute. This is so important to understand. For we have come to share. This is a past event. Matter of fact, in the Greek, it's a perfect tense, which means you have in the past come to share. The effects of that event continue to today. It is saying, you know that that event actually happened if you are believing. If you are not believing, you better not go back and say, well, I prayed a prayer, I'm good. No, the greatest hope of our salvation, now this flies in the face of Baptistic circles, celebrate that day when you came into the faith. I came into it at six years old, believed and trusted in Jesus Christ. But I do not hang my salvation on the fact that those years ago when I was six, I prayed a prayer. I hang my salvation that right now I believe and know that Jesus Christ intercedes for Nathan Smith. Though I am a sinner, he's paid my debt and I'm going to heaven because he lives. That is my hope. Don't worry so much about remembering the exact details of what you said or how you prayed it. Just believe now and know that what you believe is the assurance that that event actually happened. If you die in disbelief, even after starting out well, the Bible says you weren't really a believer. You say, that couldn't happen to me. Well, the passage ends with, well, who were those who heard and rebelled? Verse 16. It was those who left Egypt and saw the miracles. Who were the ones that were provoked? It was the ones in the wilderness. Who were the ones that ultimately did not enter the rest, but the Israelites who saw everything 
But what kept them out? Listen, verse 19, and you should circle this last word. We see that they were unable to enter, not because they were imperfect, not because they did not occasionally wrestle, not because they struggled with sin. They were unable to enter because of what? Unbelief. That's what keeps you out of heaven. And that's what damns you to hell. Unbelief. So what must you do? Believe in the Lord Jesus. Acts 16 says, and you will be saved. To believe is to trust. You have to trust in a living person, in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died as a substitute for those who trust in him and lives to see that those whom he brought with his blood will be redeemed. If you've trusted in Christ, he will hold you fast. Trust Jesus Christ. Be done with yourself. Be done with trusting in the faith of others. Rather, believe yourself and commit your soul to the keeping of the faithful Redeemer. Don't harden your hearts. Believe. Would you pray with me? And before we close, I haven't done this in a while, but if you are out there and you are wondering where you stand before God, you do not know if you're going to die today, if you were to go to heaven, or you've been convicted of what I've been preaching today from God's word, and you would like prayer. My prayer does not save you. I just want, I just want you to quietly, nobody else looking, you as a testament between you and the Lord that something in your life needs to change. Would you just raise your hand? You've been convicted. This is just a testimony between you and the Lord. Please pray for me, Pastor. See that hand? I see that hand. You afraid of people looking at you? Don't be. Yeah, I see you. I see you. I see you. And you. The Lord sees you. I don't know what it is. It's in your life. But today is the day. Repent. Talk about it. Come talk with me. Talk with my pastors up here. Oh, Jesus. Guide us today. 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 Not tomorrow. Speak to us today. Convict our hearts and those who, Lord, have been convicted. I pray that you would show them their conviction, that you would shower upon them your grace and love, and I pray that you would work your will in their life. May they have the courage to follow through on what needs to be followed through on, and for all of us, I pray that you convict our hearts. May we take warning, but may we also walk boldly that the one who saves us will keep us, and if we have believed, he will keep us us secure until that day you take us home. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would stand with me this morning. The book of Hebrews chapter 13 verse 20 to 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant equip you with everything good that you may do his will 
working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, God bless you are dismissed.